You're listening to the Paleo NP podcast, episode number 22. Welcome to the Paleo NP podcast. I'm Martha, a family nurse practitioner and creator of MarthaFlorence.com. I live in Anchorage, Alaska with my boyfriend and fur children. I'm here to share my take on integrative health, nutrition, and fitness, answer your questions, and talk with health and wellness experts. You can submit your questions at MarthaFlorence.com. Enjoy this week's episode. Remember that the materials and content within this podcast are intended as general information only and are not to be considered a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Paleo NP podcast. This week I'm mixing it up a little bit and letting my inner nerd shine. So I came across an interesting study that I wanted to talk about because I think that it's really valuable and I honestly could have written a blog post about it, but I just think that it's more interesting to talk through it rather than write about it. So this episode is probably going to be pretty short, but as I said, I really think that this is important information that I just really wanted to talk about. So most of you have probably heard of the issue of gluten sensitivity, which is more officially called non-celiac gluten sensitivity. I think I've even mentioned it here on the podcast before. There is a huge degree of varying opinions in the medical community about whether this exists or not, and not a whole lot of high quality data out there, which usually leads me to believe that the truth lies somewhere in the middle. So this study that I came across, and I'll link to it in the show notes if anyone is interested in actually looking at it, looks at how common non-celiac gluten sensitivity is, as well as the common symptoms and what does the reaction look like in terms of how long does it take to occur. This was a huge study done with over 12,000 patients in Italian medical centers, and this is one of the things that makes it a really reliable study. And it was done with a huge questionnaire that was administered by a physician who specializes in this area. So it's not necessarily the most perfectly designed study, but for a study that looks at this type of data, I would say that it is well above average. And with a huge sample size, that's really helpful as well. So in terms of symptoms that are commonly associated with non-celiac gluten sensitivity, you've got your digestive symptoms and your non-digestive symptoms. And that's important because something that I talk a lot about with my clients and patients is that you can have something like fatigue that's actually caused by your gut, even though you don't have any gut symptoms like bloating or gas. So it's important to understand that part because a lot of people miss that connection and assume that since they have no digestive symptoms that there's nothing wrong with their gut. So looking at the digestive symptoms from the study, bloating, abdominal pain, and diarrhea were the three most common. And this makes perfect sense because if you're eating a food that you're sensitive to or that's inflammatory, then having digestive symptoms should seem relatively obvious. Then as far as non-digestive symptoms, so generally not feeling well, fatigue and headache were the three most common there. And I think that it's really interesting because one of the most common complaints I hear is that someone just doesn't feel really well or they feel really tired. Two really important pieces of information here are that 95% of the patients reported these symptoms. So there's a lot more listed in the study and I'm talking about all of those symptoms, not just the top three that I mentioned. So 95% of the patients reported these symptoms every time they ate something with gluten in it. 
And the other really standout piece of information is that over 90% of the people in this study had a discernible reaction within 24 hours. So this to me is a pretty big deal because I think a lot of people out there are giving recommendations that if you are gluten sensitive and you eat gluten, that you might be fueling an inflammatory and autoimmune reaction that you might not know about for months or years. So people are often led to believe that they need to avoid gluten 100% of the time, even if they have no obvious reaction to it. But this study is pretty clear in that over 90% of people experience a reaction within 24 hours. So that just really adds to the importance and the value in finding what works for you. So if you do an elimination diet, and as I've said before, I think that is an extremely valuable tool and everyone should do one with a proper reintroduction protocol, even if it's just something like the Whole30. So if you do an elimination diet and you reintroduce gluten and you truly don't notice any changes in 24 hours, then it's highly unlikely that you're gluten sensitive. I do stand by my recommendation that people generally stick to a gluten-free diet because I just don't think that it's all that good for you to eat gluten. And I think that gluten-containing foods often push out other more nutrient-dense foods. But knowing whether or not you react does help you to feel less stress around eating out or eating in situations where avoiding gluten might not always be an option. So if you know that you don't react to it, then there's no reason to worry in a situation where you might not really be able to avoid it. With someone who truly is celiac though, it can take weeks or longer for symptoms to manifest. So that's where a diagnosis might actually be helpful because then you would know whether you truly need to avoid it or if it was a situation where an accidental exposure or an exposure by choice would be doing any harm or cause any symptoms weeks later. Unfortunately, there's no test that definitively tests for non-celiac gluten sensitivity, but if you look at the genetic testing for celiac disease, then you can actually kind of make an unofficial diagnosis. So if you do the HLA DQ2 and DQ8 gene testing and it comes back negative, that means that it is highly unlikely that you have celiac. So if that's you, you can move forward with the assumption that if you have any reaction to gluten, that it would occur within 24 hours. And if you do have a reaction to gluten within the 24 hours of eating it, then you would definitely have what I would call an unofficial non-celiac gluten sensitivity diagnosis. And if you don't have a reaction, then you're probably fine to eat gluten however you see fit. Testing positive for the HLA, DQ2, and DQ8 genes is not a definitive celiac diagnosis. So if that's you, you may want to have further evaluation to rule it out, which unfortunately does require that you eat gluten. And you can approach this in a couple of ways. So if you don't care to ever consume gluten, you don't really need to worry about further testing. But if you are someone who wants to eat gluten ever, either occasionally or regularly, then further testing is actually probably a good idea. This usually means that you would need to eat gluten for about six weeks. If you know that you have a strong reaction to gluten, then you may not want to go through this, with this test and just plan on avoiding it because if it makes you feel lousy, then why would you eat it? But if you aren't sure, then it might be a good idea for you to get this testing done. And something that I'm going to talk about in the adrenal, in the adrenal recovery mistakes episode is about how we tend to rely too much on a lot of testing. And while I definitely think that there is value in testing for celiac disease, I don't know that there is value in it for everyone because it does depend on how you plan to live your life. 
if you know that you react to gluten and you can avoid it and don't ne- you don't necessarily require a celiac diagnosis. But if you're unsure, you can test it with an elimination diet and see what happens. Neither of those cases require blood or genetic testing, but for some, a diagnosis may actually be helpful. Also, there's the 10% of patients in this study who did not have a reaction in 24 hours. So it is possible that if you don't have celiac and you don't have a reaction in 24 hours, you could still have a reaction. And while 10% isn't a huge number, it is still significant in my opinion. And this is one of the reasons why I tend to be in the camp of if you aren't sure you have a reaction to gluten, avoid it most of the time. And as I've talked about before, I know my tolerance personally, though recently, unfortunately, I think it's decreasing, which is a topic for a whole different episode in itself. But I've discovered that through self-experimentation. And I definitely think that I fall into the reaction within 24 hours camp, but not always. And that's definitely dose dependent. So the more I consume, the faster the reaction happens. All right, looking at some of the disorders that are commonly associated with non-celiac gluten sensitivity, so IBS and food intolerances, which were the top two, which again, really isn't too surprising. One really interesting thing here is that autoimmune diseases were found in 14% of the cases of non-celiac gluten sensitivity, and about two-thirds of those were actually cases of autoimmune thyroid conditions. Now, here's where we're going to get into some myth-busting, looking at the prevalence, so how common this is. Because as I said before, the opinions on either end of the spectrum of yes, this exists and is a thing, and no, this is complete BS and doesn't exist, tend to be more common than those in the middle. So what this study found was that in patients who were not feeling well and who went to see their doctor, the the prevalence of non-celiac gluten sensitivity was about 3%. And in patients who were not ill or in the general population, the prevalence is about 1%. So this is essentially slightly more common than celiac disease. Since this study was so large and the diagnostic survey was so comprehensive, it gives us what is very likely an accurate representation of the general population. The other interesting thing here is that 30% of the cases of non-celiac gluten sensitivity had some sort of unresolved gut issue that might also be contributing to the reactivity to gluten. And they found that the most common causes of this were SIBO and food intolerances. So SIBO is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So based on this information, if you think that you have non-celiac gluten sensitivity, you have about a 30% chance of eliminating the, the reaction that you have to gluten by looking into whether or not you have SIBO and or trying a diet like a low FODMAP diet, which is really helpful for a lot of people who have SIBO. One thing to remember is that since the diagnosis was made by a survey, there is the chance that something else was causing this reaction to gluten. So in the case of SIBO, it could have been FODMAPs, which often are combined with gluten in a lot of foods, so it can be hard to determine which one is causing the reaction. So it's hard to say with 100% certainty that the reaction was to gluten, but that doesn't really lessen the impact of this study in my mind. A couple of other takeaway points from this study was that non-celiac gluten sensitivity is more common in females than in males by about a 5 to 1 ratio, it's more common in adults than in children, and it's more commonly detected in people who have a first-degree relative that has celiac disease. So I hope that this kind of helps you understand a little bit more about non-celiac gluten sensitivity and make sure that if you have a problem with gluten that you can identify it and then avoid gluten if you need to. I do also want to make sure that if you don't have a problem with gluten, you identify that so that you aren't unnecessarily making your life harder by avoiding a food that isn't really problematic for you. 
But as I said earlier, I do tend to recommend that everyone avoid gluten to the best of their ability, as I think that it is just not something that really promotes health. But if you don't have an issue with it and you and you still choose to avoid it, you can alleviate some stress in situations where it's difficult to avoid, knowing that if you do eat it, there isn't going to be a terrible fallout from it. So that's it for this week's episode. If you found this information useful, I would love it if you would share it with someone else who might also find it useful. And if you like this podcast, I would love it if you would leave a rating or a review on iTunes or in the Apple Podcast app so that more people are able to find it. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you next week.